Christmas, you filthy animal. And a happy new year. Welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Hank Kazaria and Harry Shearer were the second actors to play Moe and Mr. Burns on The Simpsons, replacing the short-lived Christopher Collins, better known for his work as Starscream and Cobra Commander in Transformers and G.I. Joe, respectively. I'm Gareth Hirons, and joining me today to talk about some things that he remembers, and no one else ever seems to, is writer and TV's claggers expert, Tim Worthington. Tim, what are you up to, and where can we find it? Are people tired of me saying, normally you'll find me hosting this when I appear as a guest, and either this or it's good except it sucks, but even if they are, that's what I'm saying, because it's absolutely true. I'm up to the usual stuff at timworthington.org, got a couple of things planned that aren't quite finished yet. As I say, there should be a Christmas special if it's good except it sucks out as well, and basically, I'm just sticking it out on Twitter, despite the fact it's now owned by a kind of pan and scam Michael Jackson who seems intent on doing some very strange things, and that's about it, basically. Fantastic. It's only Christmas again, isn't it? After the third year in the row of exhaustedly trudging through a bizarrely fractured version of modern life, pinballing from pandemic to political disaster via tiresome billionaire hijinks and cost-of-living crises, it's very nearly time to forget all about that for a few days and eat, drink and make merry with our loved ones. With that in mind, it's an honour to be asked to take the reins again, as Tim talks us through some of his favourite Christmas curios and festive forgottens. So let's raise a glass of nog, any sort of nog will do, move the tinsel away from open flames, and find out what his first pick is. <laughs> Roll it in. I mean, that just takes me right back there. I haven't even got anything funny to say about it. It's just a banger. Tim, tell them where it's from. That is I Was Born on Christmas Day by Saint Etienne, which was nominally part of the Xmas 93 EP in 1993. But let's face it, that was the single. That was the lead track. That's what got played everywhere. That was quite an important record for me at the time, because in that context, there weren't really many kind of indie or alternative Christmas records, and you wouldn't really hear them outside any of the sort of avenues that you would hear, well, indie and alternative records anyway. And it was a minor hit. But it really felt like quite something to me. And the very odd thing is, it hasn't been accepted into the wider canon of recurring Christmas records. Whereas some things around exactly at the same time as it, that were not Christmas records at all, have found their way in there. It's unthinkable today that this only got to number 37 at the time. That's in the UK. It also got to number 93 in the all-important Eurochart Hot 100. So, you know, I'm sure that will have been some consolation for them. The Christmas number one, which was the same week, was... 
Rogers, Mr. Blobby. St. Etienne would duke it out between 30 and 40 with the very dating combination of Blind Melon's No Rain, Soul no. Asylum's Runaway Train, no! and what was ultimately Nirvana's last single in Kurt Cobain's lifetime, All Apologies. Well, I mean, that's all right, but the other two, no. <laughs> it's not a very Christmassy bunch, really, is it? More disturbingly, at number 29, I don't remember this existing at all, was Green Jelly's cover of I'm the Leader of the Gang, featuring Hulk Hogan on guest vocals. I mean, when you look at the chart from round then, there were very few Christmassy things going on. I suppose the nearest thing in that top 40 that week to an equivalent Christmas record is Walking on Air by Bad Boys Inc., the Little Remember Boy band produced by Ian Levine. And that's not really... I mean, were they trying to riff on Walking in the Air? But that's not really what you call a Christmas record. It doesn't mention anything festive at all. But this did. And the thing we've not said yet is that it's a duet between St. Etienne and Tim Burgess and the Charlatans, which gave it an extra edge that has really been forgotten about, which is that that was not a good time for the Charlatans. I mean, I know worse was to come for them, but 91, 92, they'd had all that initial success and then they had a couple of singles that didn't do as well and an album that bombed between 10th and 11th and Martin Blunt, the bassist, basically had a nervous breakdown, had to take some time off. Rob Collins, the keyboard player, accidentally gave a lift to an armed robber and had to go to prison because of that. And the very odd thing was, throughout 1993, they did almost nothing I think they released a fan club single, which is a live version of Subterranean, which then later turned up as a B-side. And also, they did some day-tripper shows with Ryder as a joint headlining thing, which got Tim Burgess back onto the front of the enemy and Melody Maker. But somehow, by doing nothing that year apart from be themselves, it felt like they're sort of... Because they'd been written off by everyone. It felt like they'd won the war. They'd somehow made a comeback to rehabilitate themselves. And to end the year with this lovely song with Tim back in the spotlight, back front and centre. I mean, I've changed, to say, my relationship with the Charlatans over the years. It's one of many things where I liked what they did early on and then they went down a different route and I just thought, this isn't really for me, fair enough. But at that point, it was genuinely exciting because it was that combined with St Etienne were a band, well, still are a band, actually, that I was very, very, very keen on. Right from their debut single, Only Love Can Break Your Heart, and Fox Bass Alpha, their debut album, I sometimes think is my favourite album of all time. Basically, I've used this description so many times, but it is like on an old radio, the dial was jammed between the 60s oldies station and underground dance station. They were making inroads into the charts, really exciting in 1993, as well as the album So Tough. They had hits with You're in a Bad Way and the cover of Who Do You Think You Are. At that point, Christmas songs were kind of out of favour a bit, and it was in a crowded market. It wasn't going to do that well, but to me, the fact they got to number 37 or on top of the pops and the word, it was just really exciting. It felt like Christmas to me. I thought they were on top of the pops with this, which kind of makes it even more confusing that it stalled where it was. Um, there was better to come for St Etienne from a sort of commercial point of view afterwards but they never seem to have quite broken through and neither is this song like you say even in the sort of pantheon of kind of cult classics that get trotted out every Christmas still sparse plays for this one do you think there's any factors behind that? I think it's basically just a historical thing it's an unfortunate timing because at that point Christmas songs were very much a thing of the past anyway literally it was a heritage thing you know you get your Slade your Wizard your 
Mudd and so on, Johnny Mathis. People weren't really doing new ones. Jason Donovan did the sort of Christmas single, When You Come Back to Me, which wasn't one of his bigger hits, actually. And so it wasn't really thing, but as well as that, the whole alternative thing to it, St. Etienne were still a band, and that's what charts and sets they'd had that appealed to people like me, should we say. You know, smash hits were very keen on them, but it's hard to cross over a band like that in a way that only 18 months later it became easy to do. It's that stage where, if you were lucky, you would hear Christmas rapping by the waitresses, you might hear John Peel play it, might hear it on the evening session, very unlikely you'd hear it on daytime radio once, certainly not on commercial radio. And this sort of appeared in that sort of vacuum and... I think that's why I think people just maybe don't even really know it exists or forget about it. Because the other thing that came out that Christmas, which again, people when they hear it will think I've completely lost it and will not want to hear it again. There was another single kind of in the same bracket called Merry X-Mess by Rotterdam Termination Source. Ah, yes, the classic. Hardcore Gabba with the Victorian choir of revelers singing Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, sing a song with the glorious season sampled over the top. And again, did that actually make the top you think about stored just outside but that's kind of not quite a companion piece of this but i put them together in my mind because they were everywhere for me at that point i understand completely that most people probably didn't hear either of them at all because you know it was mr blobby to play and incidentally i don't think i've ever mentioned on here when the mr blobby single came out you know the big breakfast was in its pomp at that point and they this is one of the many reasons i never liked the big breakfast they reveled in doing spoilers for things just because they could of what was going to happen in TV series they played the Stone Roses love spreads ahead of the official unveiling of it which is a bit who watching The Big Breakfast was that keen to hear a Stone Roses single that it would break the media embargo to play it but they said Mr Blobby's got a single coming out we've been told it's not ready yet but we've got the video now what they played in they had the Mr Blobby music playing over it was basically remember the IBA colour bars (laughs) it was them with a sort of computer generation Amiga or Atari ST Mr. Blobby sort of moving vertically you know like those old TV video games and like squash and so on I don't know what that was or who had sent it to them and why but I remember being disappointed that it wasn't the actual video for it. It does sound superior, to be fair. But like I say, it was quite an exciting time because that year as well, I think it was in the February, I'd been to see St. Etienne doing a co-headlining tour with Pulp. And that was the moment I started to think something is happening here, something that is different to, you know, the America worship, the prevalence at that point, or the rave stuff and so on. Because there have been bands like Suede are an exception, but homegrown indie bands, you know, alternative music had not really been an effective challenge to any of that even bands I loved like Airhead couldn't really sort of stand up against the onslaught of the Red House Painters and Stone Temple Pilots but <laughs> that I remember thinking it was only you know, the student union at the University of Liverpool I remember thinking I'm in a venue full of like-minded people these two bands are amazing and they look amazing something is going on and obviously mixed feelings about what did go on but that was such an exciting time it was a bit of an exciting year for alternative music anyway because on a really positive level you have Modern Life is Rubbish by Blur which really is that was a triumph over the odds that was even their record label had written them off there were 
differing opinions about how they develop in the future with people like Sleeper and Echo Belly and Elastica are part of their first singles. There was Suede's debut album and the debut by Bjork. Liberation, the first Divine Comedy album, which is very different to what they went on to do. And so it was quite an exciting time, really. So if this had been released a few years later, then, do you think it could have done better? Well, I think it could, because you only have to look at the fact that neither Blur nor Oasis managed to do a Christmas single. And they were done to us likely to. We Blur did the Wassailing song, which is the Medieval Carol, which was given away at gigs, I think, as a one-sided seven-inch. I love that, but it doesn't really count as a Christmas single. And Oasis basically just changed a few words of How Sweet to Be an Idiot by Neil Innes, turned it into a football champ with some violins. That's the best way of describing that. And someone at the end going, ooh, 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 no Gallagher, no Gallagher. And, you know, I don't count that as a Christmas single. <laughs> Funnily enough, you don't hear that on rotation on Christmas stations, do you? They're free to play whatever they want, but they're not playing that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, above all else, this is just such a... It's a wonderful song. I mean, it reminds me, personally, of a really good time. But you look at the lyrics, the fact it was inspired by the fact that Bob Stanley from St. Etienne was actually born on Christmas Day. I'm not saying he's Jesus, that's for other people to say. (laughs) But you've got lyrics like, In December, my heart's full of spring, had to call you, tell you everything. You know, it's like a duet thing. And that is like the dizzying excitement of first falling for somebody. Just nailed in a couple of lines. And it's got that wonderful ringing arrangement and the melodica, which is, you know, that keyboard instrument you blew into that other kids always had that they wouldn't play with and said, no, let's play this board game based on heraldry instead. <laughs> like, I want to play the blow piano thing. I should really say, actually, I said it was the Xmas 93 EP. The other three tracks were Snowplow and Peter Lou, which were instrumentals, and My Christmas Prayer. You know, this is interesting. A cover of Billy Fury Christmas record from the early 60s. Who even knows that there were Christmas records in the 60s now? There were actual Christmas records, Christmas hits in the 50s and 60s, which is completely forgotten about, but St. Etienne later did a compilation called Songs for London Winter that had all this stuff on it. It had Russ Conway, Johnny Dankworth and Cleo Lane, Billy Fury, obviously, Adam Faith, everyone like that. And it's a fascinating listen because those songs evoke a very different kind of Christmas, you know, when everything's shut down at five o'clock and you'll be home with your paper chains in the house. Have you nothing to do but watch a Russ Conway concert? with his one song. The weird thing is, the only person in the country who wouldn't be able to watch that would have been him because it would have been going out live on TV. (laughs) (laughs) It's not why the songs sounded the same because he never actually heard them. That, I understand, was the main problem. And now for our next trick, we're off to the Ambassador's Ball. Where zouden ze blij mee zijn? Wie iemand een mooi cadeau wil geven, moet zeker weten wat in de smaak zal vallen, zoals de specialiteiten van Ferrero. U kunt kiezen tussen Ferrero Rocher en Montcherie, of allebei in de geschenkdoos Assortiment Prestige. De specialiteiten van Ferrero. Well, after you've been really spoiled for a few balls on the trot, I guess you might get a bit burnt out on the whole pile of Rocher deal. So, Tim, what can you suggest to up the decadence level? Well, I'm actually at the ambassador's reception. I'm putting myself in the presumably very expensive shoes of the woman in the advert for Ferrero Prestige, which has been a kind of confectionery holy grail of mine for a very long time. Well, as a great advocate of forgotten or obscure snacks, I'm going to have to ask you for some details on these non-Rocher Ferrero products. I'm assuming they're canon. What are we looking at here? They are absolutely canon because Rocher is included. Basically, Ferrero Prestige is a huge... Huge tray. It's split into four. You get a couple of lines of Rocher, 
a couple of lines of pocket coffee, which is chocolate with a shot of espresso in, a couple of lines of moncherie, which is chocolate with a whole cherry in, and a couple of lines of cushion, which is basically a kind of praline confection of some description. Very expensive, very big, and never mind the ambassador's reception. If he had a pyramid of Rocher at his party, at this one was prestige. I don't know what it'd be. It'd be, I don't know, Belinda Carlisle doing coke or some gold bullion. <laughs> At a private screening of that lost BBC play with Bob Dylan in, and probably the actual literal Piers Morgan used as a novelty punch bag in the corner. I'm there! If anyone knows who the ambassador that runs that party is, please, please, please put me in touch with them. It just seems so impossibly glamorous to me around the time, because the weird thing about the ambassador's reception advert is, it was that that turned Ferreira Roche into a punchline. Before that, they themselves had seemed almost impossibly glamorous. You think about it. At that point, you've got roses, you've got black magic, you know, pretty much standard. No matter how opulent they were, things like all gold as well. Chocolates, they were just chocolates in the tray. Suddenly you've got these weird, half gooey, half hard, spherical chocolates with dashed hazelnuts all around. In a gold wrapper, in a little paper tray, inside a clear plastic case with the thickness of the windows and the picture box. And they open the titles of picture box. And that sort of thing were... <laughs> If you'd given somebody a spare ticket for something, they would give Ferrero Rocher to the person the ticket originally belonged to to say thank you because it was that big. But prestige, oh my word. The main thing I remember them being doled out in relation to was things in school and in church when somebody had done something to help with, I don't know, the Christmas assembly or something that had been considered above and beyond the call of duty. They would be presented by the head teacher with a tray Ferrero prestige. All the kids in the school would be looking in wonder and they invite that weird thing where, you know, a teacher would say, uh, I don't remember saying anyone could look. <laughs> yeah, because they were short of anything to tell anyone off for, but they saw this kind of mass curiosity as dissent. I don't think I ever actually got hold of one. And I was just fascinated by what are all these other chocolates? Why do you never see them anywhere else? And as an avowed fan of the Ferrero Rocher, I wanted more. I particularly wanted pocket coffee, which will not surprise anyone who knows me. <laughs> But also, I was very, I still am very seduced by anything that seems glamorous from Europe. I mean, even at that age already, I was obsessed with Magic Roundabout. I was interested in people like Francois Hardy, European cinema, coffee. Well, there's a surprise. And I always wondered why people went on and on about the full English breakfast. It seemed like the dullest thing in the world to me. And I was thinking, what? There's a breakfast where you can have like two croissants and black coffee. And it's called the Continental Breakfast. That's the one for me. <laughs> And so Ferrero Rocher seemed like the biggest extravagance and opulence you could have in that area. And because it wasn't widely available, you didn't see footballers waving them around on the TV saying, oh, well, the lads thought I'd done good, so they got me one of these. It didn't have any tarnish to it. It felt exciting. It felt jet-setting, but not in the kind of horrendously capitalist way. And I so wanted one. But how did you get hold of them? Well, I mean, I honestly had not heard of these until you mentioned them. We have obviously moved in very different circles it seems very sort of not only is it continental glam but it's specifically kind of 70s 80s continental glam and what dates it for me is 
coffee chocolate and cherry chocolate. Now, I always remember the coffee ones in Roses disappearing sometime around the dawn of the 90s. Coffee matchmakers as well. I want them back. Yeah, no, I, I completely forgot about coffee matchmakers as well. But yeah, it seems like that all just got swept away at some arbitrary point. So there's a little piece of nostalgia in there alongside the glam for me. Well, it's funny you mention the glam because the adverts for all of these, people think the ambassador's reception is a bizarre enough advert. Bear in mind, these were adverts originally made in Europe. We never really got any of them over here. But if you look at the ones from the 80s and the 90s, the pocket coffee ones are kind of like kooky romantic comedy sort of people meat taking an exam sort of thing monsterie is sort of like well-to-do upwardly mobile couples in a comic scenario where they've forgotten having a dinner party or whatever cushion my word there's one up there in particular where basically a woman kind of goes like way i've scored two blokes i'm off to have sex with them yeah like winks to the camera at the end <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I didn't know at that point, but the faint tint of all of that as well involved in it. And it makes them all the more tantalising. And they just kept proving impossible to get. And now, you think you meant to buy them online, but because of a certain way a certain vote went a couple of years ago, you can't. The postage is about eight times the price of the trays themselves, which are not cheap. And I imagine if you complained about it, you'd have people shouting, why can't you have Cadbury's ration? It was good enough for your nana. Think of her. And go, well, mine like black magic because they're like expensive looking. <laughs> but that's by the by. I even tried in the imported sweet sweet shop that we both got moon pie from. <laughs> what a time to be alive. And they weren't able to import them. And it's... It's so frustrating. It is. I mean, I can get all of the chocolates individually through Amazon, but it's not quite the same as having a big tray, a tailor-made, custom-made tray of them with fancy, sparkly gilt lettering on it. Yeah, it's got to be the full product, hasn't it? That's the only thing they'll do. And I did do a little research. All right, I was shopping for chocolate. Are you happy now? I found that Ferrero Prestige boxes are still available on the continent, like you say, but the markup on them for post and packing is absolutely ridiculous. Assuming you can find somebody to deliver to you in the first place, because anybody overseas doesn't like Royal Mail. Confusingly, not all of the boxes feature cushion. Yes, I noticed that. Why are they such a random factor in it? Why are they sometimes included and sometimes not? Is it a territories thing? Is, is it something to do with the woman in the advert like maybe she's got some non-disclosure agreement with those two blokes i don't know i did find one thing that might point towards a possible reason apparently in 2013 they released a white chocolate cushion and in germany they had to withdraw the adverts because the slogan they used was germany votes white okay so perhaps what we're seeing is some german boxes that have quietly had those removed i mean i'm sure that was an accident but even so for a company that are that aware of their own branding they will have a big pyramid of roche in the advert and make a big thing of it and then really adopt it when people start making fun of that you would think they might have noticed. I'd agree with that, yeah. Other thing I found out about Ferrero while looking into this is that they now own the Thorntons brand. So anytime you have the Thorntons chocolates that you can still get at Tesco's and whatnot, that's actually Ferrero now. Well, that's leading me down an interesting avenue here because it's difficult to tell what Thorntons chocolates actually are anyway because they have such abstract names. But could they be rebadging some of these as Thorntons chocolates? We might have been having Cushion and Moncherie unknowingly for years at this stage. I mean, I would know if that pocket coffee, which has just reminded me of around the time I was born on Christmas Day was out. 
I was at university. A drunk bloke at a house party I was at tried to pour some coffee into his pocket to take home. <laughs> I've forgotten all about that until now. A quite literal pocket coffee. So while we're on the subject, is there any other confectionery? We touched briefly on matchmakers, but anything else that absolutely screams Christmas to you? The coffee matchmakers, they are the ultimate one, really, because it was the pungency of them. I don't know what the flavour was, but it wasn't anything like... It was maybe like coffee if you inhaled the bottom of a mellow bird's jar. The residual powder that sort of solidified against the edges. That's the only sort of coffee I can imagine it being like. It was almost like pickled onion monster munch levels of almost chemical warfare flavour overload and I would love to have them again oh yeah back in their original form zingy orange and quality street wrapper flavour or whatever it is now right well that's left me feeling hungry so let's move on to a clip of your next pick do you hear that there's an amazing band in there Alberto Frog and his amazing animal band is a story about them. It pleases me so much to say this just the once, but I think that was actually a little before my time. So, Tim, what in the blue hell was that? That was Bod's present, an episode of the BBC Watch Your Mother Children show Bod. But you said you were hungry. Do you like milkshakes? Yes, I am partial to a milkshake, Tim. Well, this episode will be no use to you because, as I'll come back to, the milkshake doesn't feature in it. This was... I mean, Bod was, I think, first shown in 1975. And people forget there was this Christmas episode of it. The whole weird story with Bod, the actual story stories of Bod and his friends were made as a separate series first and the BBC said can you bump this up to a 15 minute slot so they made this kind of videotape handmade animation around it where you can hear people knocking things over in the studio in the background if you listen closely and they added the game of snap and the 10 green bottle song and so on and it was one of those really kind of very odd programs you got in the 70s kind of in the wake of things like Yellow Submarine and Terry Gilliam's animation where a lot of them were made by Michael and Joanne Cole who were a husband and wife BBC producer team who worked on things like Play School Ragtime Playbob Fingerbobs things like that they had created Bod for children's storybooks in the 60s and some of them were read out on Play School basically Bod was based on Taoist philosophy and stories from Buddhism it's literally that the story here narrated I should say by John LeMessure with songs by Derek Griffiths is that Bod who's kind of a Buddha-like boy in a very long yellow coat goes to live in a Christmas present to Aunt Flo. Along the way, he's joined by PC Copper, Frank the Postman, and Farmer Barleymo, who are all doing exactly the same thing. It keeps snowing, they get buried in the snow, they're discovered by what I can only describe as a bod universe Father Christmas, who sees the presents lying on the ground, pulls them up, pulls them up with them, and says, I'll give you a lift to Aunt Flo's if you help me deliver all my presents. They turn up at Aunt Flo's, they've all bought her the same hat, she's bought all of them handkerchiefs, which is lucky, because they've all got colds, and it ends with bod saying, it was worth catching a cold to meet Father Christmas as a young fellow with all those hearts, which is kind of wisdom and not wisdom at the same time. <laughs> yes, I think I'll react to that with the sound of one hand clapping. So this was aired on the 22nd of December 1975. I had a look and see what else was going on at that stage. It turns out the UK number one at that stage was Bohemian Rhapsody, which doesn't actually narrow down when it was released at all, if I hadn't known it in the first place. It could have been anywhere between 1972 and 1998. But this is so delightfully weird 
that I think it could only be from mid-70s BBC children's output. Absolutely. There's that whole... Because they threw no money at all at children's programmes in those days. And there was... I mean, I say there's a make-do-amend thing to things like Rent-A-Ghost, where they took inspiration from what was to hand in terms of sets and props and so on. But literally in this, and a lot of the Coles other programmes, it is make-do-amend. There are bits in this where, because it's a guessing game about presents, what's wrapped up in this, it's like a piggy bank and so on. It's drawings that their kids have done of things, but also... There are photographs of what are clearly homemade presents in their house. That's all over Bod, because a lot of the outside the Bod sections itself, the animation is literally just moving bits in real time around in front of backgrounds or zooming on pictures. You can barely call it animation at all, but it has got, like you say, that wonderful, weird 70s quality. What little I've actually seen of the show, and I've seen a few other examples of it, is incredibly strange i find it very eerie it seems too empty in some ways but then you also have the songs of Derek griffiths which are almost a, a counterbalance to that in terms of making it sort of warm and jolly i do struggle to see how they managed to get anything festive out of this i mean his songs are very odd anyway because they're basically free jazz you know you think you've heard Derek griffiths doobie doobie doobieing on other programs this is off the scale it sounds like he's just turned up with there's a violin there's a clarinet there's a handful of instruments he's basically just hey let's the show right here etc those tunes are seared into people's memories but they've not festive them up at all for this it is just in the actual content of the story and in the alberto frog story which is not mentioned because one thing that was added for the extended versions was stories involving alberto frog and his amazing animal band which would always be something like a bridge was out so they'd somehow build a bridge by playing music and people would go over. Alberto would always be rewarded with a milkshake and they'd have all the different animals guessing. The cats thought he'll have lime. Lime milkshake? Where did that even come from? They do a lime milkshake at Wimpy, I can tell you that much. So real life has caught up with Bod. Brilliant. But <laughs> then you would have to guess what milkshake Alberto had and you'd see him basically just that thing where, you know, there's a tab under the frame where they pull down and the, quote, milkshake level in the carton he's got will go down very jerkily. But in this, the story is that Hippo, who's one of the tuba players, doesn't know what to get Mrs. Hippo for Christmas. And after a lot of prevarication involving him sitting in a big sofa, sort of ruminating with a pen in his mouth, Alberto Frog decides what they should do is play a concert on the stairs of Hippo's house on Christmas morning, <laughs> which Mrs. Hippo is delighted with. But she doesn't give Alberto a milkshake. Not even festive, you know, mistletoe or whatever they have one. It is missing. And that is really jarring. I can't explain why. It's like if Simon Quinlan didn't drink his weak lemon drink in Fist of Fun. It just wouldn't be right. Just would not be right. There is also the game of Snap at the end, which hasn't been festively amended in any way at all. When you were a kid, if you had younger siblings, you could remember which milkshake Alberto chose at the end of the stories and sort of appear to be this incredibly perceptive sage who would get it right every time. You could not remember, because they were so similar, Maggie Henderson narrated all the other bits of it, including Alberto Frog, and that was her we heard in the clip just then. She'd be saying, Bart and Barlymo. No, that's not Snap. Bod and PC Copper. No, that's not Snap. Bod and Bod. Snap! That's Snap! And there was no way you could remember what the result of the game of Snap was, who was matched with who. So your faked powers fell apart spectacularly in insert name of TV illusionist here style. Okay, moving on. Here's a clip from an unlikely pop pick.
Now, I know those people, but not in that order. Tim, what have we got here? That was a merry jingle by the Greedies. Originally, the Greedy Bastards, but they had to change it to stand any chance of getting in radio play, which is ex-members of the Sex Pistols and current members of Thin Lizzy forming a sort of super group to do basically a punk version of We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Excellent. Well, I know Cook and Jones really did get around during the death throes of the Sex Pistols. I must admit, despite the names involved, this one's completely passed me by. Yeah, it's another one. A bit like I was born on Christmas Day that's never quite made that leap into becoming a recurring Christmas Day. There are a number of reasons for it this time. One, as much as I love it, it is a bit repetitive. Two, genuinely, I think, because I didn't hear this until about around 1991, you know, when the Kiss This compilation came out, when it finally became acceptable to acknowledge that Sex Pistols existed, because we were kind of taboo before that. I remember being aware that they'd happened, there had been this band called the Sex Pistols who got in trouble for things. And that was the extent of your knowledge, really. I remember thinking that God Save the Queen must have been an actual punk version of God Save the Queen. Because you didn't hear any of their records anywhere. It was like the whole very festive disc. There's that weird sort of idea around video nasties that it wasn't just enough to say these are quite disturbing horror films. There's a bit of perception that they could somehow get you beyond the tape. And that somehow the sex pistols might gob on you and call Bill Grundy a rotter if you so much as acknowledge they existed. I think I only heard Anakin in the UK in the late 80s, really, because they were just shunned. And I think this, although it's very tenuously associated with the actual Sex Pistols, was probably shunned because of that. You might have heard it, I'm guessing, on John Peel. Later on, you start to hear it on the evening session, but I think it was cast out because I think the really telling thing is it's not on the first iteration of Now the Christmas album from 1985, and there are some very tenuous inclusions on there. And this must have been in the running because Virgin co-ran the Now series at that point. But obviously, for some reason, they thought we can't have that on there. The other thing is, the B-side, people might have felt a bit ripped off by, because it's called A Merry Jungle. It is that backwards, with Phil Lyon at occasion saying how much he likes cash over the top of it. Yeah, something the Stone Roses would be proud of there. That's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of those, oh, I hate this thing now, that those backwards Stone Roses B-sides are being reclaimed as, you know, mellow tunes, man. I mean, I have a lot of problems with the way the Stone Roses have been reappropriated, but at the time, I remember thinking, ooh, Guernica, what's that? Oh, it's made the stone backwards. Cheers, lads. <laughs> that was worth seeking out. It's an interesting lineup of people. I mean, Phil Lillard strikes me as somebody who had a sense of humour. So this seems kind of pretty in character, to be honest. It seems like at the time, Thin Lizzy were in a bit of a creative rut. And perhaps associating with the punk scene was a way of sort of re-energising themselves. Can't imagine Gary Moore was having the time of his life. But, you know, it's horses for courses, really, isn't it? Well, I think, again, that's an interesting thing about disclaimer. I wasn't there at the time. I appreciate people will perceive this differently, as you will find out if you watch any documentary on BBC4 on a Friday night. But the year zero thing about prog into punk isn't strictly true, because there were bands like Thin Lizzy who kind of anticipated punk, and as you rightly suggested, were kind of assimilated into it as well, because of the respect that the musicians involved have for them. And there's a whole thing about you look at the very early progressive rock isn't like what it became in the 70s. Those 
those bands, those early bands, the albums were a mixture of very long tracks and the very short singles they had. Things like Devil's Answer by Atomic Rooster, Come to the Sabbath by Black Widow, and Paranoid by Black Sabbath. They are kind of, how can we get the impact, the intricacy of what we can do in a two-minute pop song that people who like pop music will buy? And there's a lot more attack in prog early on, which I'm not going to say it sounds like punk, or even has the same sort of DIY attitude, but it has some attitude in common with it and some impact in common with it. And then quite evidently, there are people who get fed up of prog in the early 70s and move over to Bowie and Roxy Music. And then you get the hippies that went into kind of radicalism, you know, like the inner city unit people, Larry Wallace and so on, who were monitoring police racism and so on. I remember hearing Tom Robinson on Jonathan Ross's show on Radio 2. This is a whole dichotomy. Jonathan Ross was a punk, he was a very prominent punk, but he was saying... Something about getting rid of the hippies, you know, oh, we all hated the hippies. And Tom Robinson said, well, I didn't hate people like Larry Wallace. Which is interesting that there are two completely different perceptions of it. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that's how Thin Lizzy ended up on this record. Were there any other punk Christmas singles at the time? Now, bear in mind, I do know there's been plenty since, but this seems to be a particularly early example. And obviously, punk and Christmas, not exactly natural bedfellows. I'm not really aware of any that can immediately call to mind. I mean, I'm sure probably the Rosillos or Cockney Rejects or Splodginess about the hilarious version of Santa Claus is coming to town or something but I genuinely remember because this was out at Christmas in 1979 we had just moved into a new house and it was really exciting to be having Christmas in a new house it was the same year that Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney was out I remember liking that and hearing it and I loved Wonderful Christmas Time but I remember hearing this a couple of times on the radio thinking ha 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 it is some punks doing jingle bells <laughs> Which I think is a great way of describing it, but I remember it really vividly because, like I say, it was a new house. It was the year we got the cardboard Death Star, I think, which is one of the most completely kind of missing the real meaning of Christmas here, but that was one of the most exciting Christmases we had ever. I've got to say, sadly, that did not survive the years. Cardboard rarely does. I have one piece of it myself. As somebody who has been effectively a punk musician for a long time, what are your impressions of it? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of its repetition. It's not a fun listen throughout. Maybe they just should have taken the usual sort of punk ethos and chopped it in half. A shorter version of this would be a lot more bearable. But yeah, in terms of the kind of musicianship and the sound, it's exactly as I would expect if you put Phil Linnett into the Sex Pistols. Is that something you expected on a regular basis? Well, you know, you've got to be ready for these kind of things. I've got all kinds of fancy band combinations scoped out, you know, but uh, just in case it ever happens. Well, I don't think I can top that statement. So now a change of subject, my dear. And it seems not a moment too soon. If I might interrupt. Yes, sorry. Hello, big fella. Who exactly are you? Well, that's the question. I demand to know who you are. I don't know. So, Tim. What are we reading on Christmas morning? We are reading The Christmas Invasion by, well, on this occasion, Jenny T. Colgan, which, yes, is a novelisation of the Doctor Who Christmas special from 2005, The Christmas Invasion. I'm not going to go wild here and pretend that The Christmas Invasion itself has been in, in any way forgotten, but I do think it's been overshadowed by the Christmas specials that have come since because they've concentrated more on spectacle and stunt casting and not really doing anything exciting, but that was such a thrill. I never thought Doctor Who would come back it comes back it's bigger than ever and then suddenly there's going to be a christmas special and it was fantastic 
and I can't describe. Well, I can't describe how exciting it was because we previously talked on lots of movie about the Brotherway Bride, the one from the following year. I think the Christmas Invasion absolutely got the tone right. It had enough Christmas in to justify its existence, but even with the Christmas elements removed, it's still a fantastic adventure. It is, which is why it annoys me a bit that this novelisation of it has sort of fallen between the cracks a little. It's not that widely mentioned or known about. It's a shame because I'm going through the whole potted history here of the Doctor Who Target books imprint, but basically it started in the early 70s when there had been three Doctor Who novels based on televised stories in the 60s that I think were aimed at libraries. Nobody owned them, nobody bought them. A publisher bought the rights to them in the early 70s, put them out in this new imprint Target, which was a kid's imprint. They sold out immediately and kept selling out on reprints, even though they were two doctors down the line on television by then. And obviously they were like, we need more of these. So it was initially a lot of the show's regular writers, a lot of the production team got involved with novelising current and past stories. Eventually most of them dropped out. So you ended up with just really Terence Dix, who was, for want of a better word, the showrunner in the very late 60s and early 70s, who I think a lot of people would agree, at the very least the most influential writer Doctor Who ever had. And also Ian Martyr, he was a member of the regular cast who basically just found out with these books and said, ooh, can I have a go? And he did a very clever thing where he tapped into that kind of allowed horror that there was for kids in the 70s. You know, if an alien was zapped in one of his novelizations, it wasn't enough just to say they got caught in the blast. It would be their head crackled and fizzed until they imploded with a loud pop. As time went by, they were just churning them out. But in the 80s, a new editor of The Rage came in, Nigel Robinson. He tried to get the original writers of televised stories to fill in gaps earlier on. What then happened was him and Terence were, you know, either the original writer wasn't available or didn't want to do it. They picked up some of the really early stories. That was towards the end of The Range, because obviously, you know, Doctor Who was cancelled in 1989. They were the really interesting ones, and they're the ones that are now the rarest because nobody bought them at the time (laughs) i used to get i had a lot of those more interesting ones because the older ones it was very easy to pick up a lot of them in one go in charity shops because at that point to the intended audience well like i don't know nancy drew books or something there's something that a kid reading would have some of for some time and then they grow out of and give them to a charity shop and you could get them for five pence each i used to get some of the newer ones for christmas but I got this, The Christmas Invasion, for Christmas in 2018. I loved it, and I still love it. I reread it in preparation for this, and I found that, because I tend to use old train tickets as bookmarks, and I found three old train tickets in roughly similar positions towards <laughs> the back of it. So I've reread it that many times. And it's kind of been overshadowed by, the reason I mentioned that, not the original writers thing, was a lot of these, because the Target Rangers rebooted in 2017, 2018, by BBC Books to novelise new series ones so you got things like Russell T Davis did Rose which has a brilliant bit where he includes the bit of Graham Norton that actually played over the episode on transmission Paul Cornell did some brilliant ones a couple of other the people who actually wrote them Jenny was given the Christmas invasion and I think because there's that cognitive thing of thinking I'm not saying I would do this but some people might think that's not the person and kind of I'm not saying consciously but it set a step back if you see what I mean no I do see what you mean it does appear though that this is one of the most wealthy thought of ones from the relaunch 
Well, I'm not surprised at all because everything that's added to it is there for a reason and really helps. I mean, one thing to say is it does have the children in need insert from just after the Doctor's regenerated the David Tennant is incorporated into it. It explains things like why Jackie brought all those bags of food into the TARDIS, including the flask of tea that revives the Doctor because she thought Rose wasn't eating properly in the TARDIS. What was going on with, because I always had a problem with this, the battle at the end with the Sycorax leader when the Doctor makes him surrender but then he runs after the Doctor with the sword, the Doctor throws the Satsuma at a button that makes a thing open that he falls off. It's not clear when you're watching it that that's a retractable wing. Right, yeah. I always wondered what was that, how did he know about it, but that's made explicit in the book. There's exactly what happened when he hit the great big threatening button that must not be pressed under any circumstances, which again, wasn't quite clear in the way it was done on screen. I mean, there was a comment shortly afterwards about it's just voodoo, you can't actually make those people walk off the edges of the buildings. It seemed more like a non-off switch the way it was done on TV, so that's added in as well, but there are extra characters that give other characters a bit more depth, a bit more character, so much more rationale behind what appear to be just character traits on screen. I absolutely love it, and I would hope that people who like Jenny Colgan may say it's a novel, because she's much better known for sort of romance novels, a lot which are set at Christmas, but this is worthy of being alongside any of them. In my opinion, there's somebody who romance novels aren't really aimed at. I would just love this to be a little bit more recognised. No, that does seem to be the case. It's obviously not her first rodeo in the Doctor Who universe, having written some originals beforehand. But yeah, I think just the way that this takes the source material and adds to it, like you say, really explains and motivates some of the events that maybe weren't shown in a coherent form on screen at the time. And I think that's a hell of an achievement. And there's also a great postscript at the end where she points very accusingly at Russell T. Davis and says, you can tell he's not really a novelist because a name like the Wellin is, quote, a toad of a name for a novelist. <laughs> But fair play and not changing it as well, which must have been tempting. Just out of interest, do we know if the T in Jenny T. Colgan is a nod to Russell T? That, I don't know. I've deliberately left it as a mystery because I'm expecting Jenny will be listening to this, so I'm hoping we get confirmation one way or the other. Well, some Christmas mysteries, Christeries, are meant to remain unsolved, I guess. And speaking of mysteries, now it's time for something that's even more hidden than the rest of these picks. Gotta rest Queen of Christmas. Except it isn't because you didn't manage to get that trademark. But who is it, Tim? Well, most people will be thinking that sounds like Mariah Carey singing God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. And that's because it is Mariah Carey singing God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, which is from the 1994 album Merry Christmas, which kind of backs up my point about the whole business with St. Etienne and Christmas songs being a bit out of favour because obviously that's now seen as being one of the biggest Christmas singles ever. It was a huge hit at the time, it is worth saying that. But it felt a bit 
in a sense, out of place at the time. It was seen as a bit of a Johnny-come-lately effort, I think. And if you look at... What was the actual Christmas number one that year? Go on, I'll just test you on that. Uh, well, it's Easter 17 with Stay Another Day. With... Which is not a Christmas song. It isn't, but if you just looked at the video, you wouldn't know it. Which video? Because there were two. Because there was the one where they got the Arctic gear on, which is then withdrawn and replaced with the one you never see now, where they're in the studio sort of larking about. I'm thinking the Arctic gear one. Like you say, we've spoken about that studio-based one before, and I I honestly don't recall it. I mean, that's a whole saga in itself. There's a fact about, I don't remember this, but people tell me that originally when it came out, it did not have the sleigh bells on it. And they were suddenly added when it looked like it was going to be a hit at Christmas. But, you know, you look at the charts around that time. There's John Bon Jovi's I'll Be Home for Christmas, which isn't very good and doesn't do very well. But apart from that, you've got Eternal Love by PJ and Duncan which is not a Christmas song. <laughs> Love Me For A Reason by Boyzone, not a Christmas song. Crocodile Shoes by Jimmy Dale. In the video for that, he fights with puppets, which is great, but it's not a Christmas song. And Dem Girls by Zick and Stag, <laughs> which... I'm sure they do all love it when he does it to the left and love it when he does it to the right, but it's not a Christmas song. In the middle, you've got Mariah not just doing a Christmas single, but a whole album, which mixes her original compositions with things like Silent Night, Heart the Herald Angels Sing, Joy to the World, Oh Holy Night, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. I don't think it quite comes off, but Christmas Baby Please Come Home, which is the original song on the, can we even mention this now, but the Phil Spector Christmas album from the 60s, which was originally done by Darlene Love. That's a bit like putting a kick me sign on your back just the huts part of that alone deserves applauding and it isn't a bad rendition it's just how do you top the original but at the end of the album i should say people were thinking why did he have this album have you met me for more than five minutes (laughs) mariah carey dressed as father christmas of course i've got that at the end of the version i had originally do you remember there was a huge craze around that time for hidden tracks on albums yes yes you'd usually have to fast forward it a little bit to get to the secret track there's that menswear song on nuisance which is in my view the best thing they ever did better than anything on the album there's that weird thing at the end of second coming by the stone Roses, (laughs) which i don't think anyone quite understands what it actually was Endless Nameless by Nirvana. So isn't the one of Ash being sick on Ash's first album? Yes, it's officially referred to as Sick Party. It's officially referred to as Fuck Off by me. <laughs> but there was that. And on this, it's barely a minute, but it's Mariah Carey doing God Rest Me Every Gentleman with a key change in it, which isn't in any other version I know about. That's impressive to get a key change into a minute-long rendition. And it was kind of... It's not quite the hipster's carol, because that's O Come, O Come in Man. Manuel. It's a bit second division in Christmas carols. The sort of thing I was associated with in the 80s, there'd be a Christmas on BBC One trailer where it'd have like a radiophonic workshop, like, and then clips of Noel saying, Join us for Christmas telly, I think it's on whatever day it is. But it was there, and then later it wasn't. It was then later added to a deluxe reissue as a track in its own right. But what was going on? Because I don't quite understand what happened there. Unless it was just so well hidden that they didn't notice it when they were going to do the (laughs) re-release. It's possible. But like I say, at the time, that album stood out anyway. Because Christmas music wasn't like it is now. Even though Phil Pope kept writing songs for Spitting Image about how there were too many Christmas singles. One thing I was going to mention is that there are other coverers of this carol. Because let's face it, it's cheap to do a carol. And they include Garth Brooks and... 
and Bare Naked Ladies. I can think of two things wrong with that band name. But since we're on the subject, are there any other pop versions of carols that float your boat? Well, of course, there is Elastica's version of Ding Dong Merrily on High as Awful Gloria. Although I think it later became just Gloria. That is an astounding track, that. I'm very keen on that. Bross did Silent Night, and basically it's... There's nothing wrong with it. It's just Bross doing Silent Night. <laughs> Literally, you don't even need to hear it. You just need to say to yourself, Bross doing Silent Night. You don't even need to imagine what it sounds like. Can you count Reverend Black Grape by Black Grape that says, oh, come all you faithful, joyful and triumphant in it. But one interesting thing about this is, are you aware of the Mariah Carey album that didn't immediately follow this? Well, no, because I'm assuming it didn't immediately follow it. Well, this is something that's only come to light in the last couple of years, but she recorded a grunge album. Kind of like exercising her demons about a relationship breakdown. The record label refused to release it, so it was re-recorded with her co-writer doing the lead vocals, and some of the lyrics they insisted were toned down as well. The album's called Someone's Ugly Daughter, credited to Chick. Apparently there were clues in the credits and the songwriting credits and the track listing and so on that nobody noticed at all. And over the years, apparently she dropped hints quite a lot in interviews, said things like, for all you know, I could have done my own Nevermind in my own time. (laughs) The other character she plays in the video for Heartbreaker was the image she was going to adopt for that, you know, the kind of gothy girl. Oh, okay. It was only when she wrote her autobiography that she said, yeah, that was me. And apparently there are plans now to release the original version with her vocals and the very explicit lyrics. That really would be a parental advisory sticker kind of album. I mean, I imagine the eventual release probably did have one at the time anyway, but it's always the people you used to expect that do grunge albums, isn't it? What, like Chris Novoselic? We're not mentioning Sweet 75 again. I don't think we can mention Sweet 75 again. There's, there's not enough to mention. And now, if your Christmas dinner needs a fish course, we've got one right here. I hope you all like Herring. Uh, so um, I'm going to ask you another emergency question because you are the best at emergency questions. You definitely give the, you gave the best answer for the ham hand one. Definitely that there were of the many many times I asked that question. Um, uh, as nice as uh, I, I, uh, kettle crisps are not as nice as they once were. <laughs> have I changed or have they? It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> If you could travel back in time to compare any food of today with an equivalent in the past, one, what time would you go to? Two, what food would you be taking to compare and what would you compare it to? Right. That's, this is, I'm saying I'd yeah. take Kettle Crisp back to find out whether they've so you would, But you don't have to compare a, a contemporary version of a... Well, if you go back so far that the thing doesn't... If I said I want to compare Kettle Crisps to the kind of crisps a caveman might eat, <laughs> then they won't have kettle crisps, yes, as far yeah. as I'm aware. Now. So that would be just a random... But I want to go back to the beginning of kettle crisps, yeah. with a kettle crisp now, and eat what that kettle crisp, and then I'll eat the old kettle crisp. I mean, it'll be new there, because I'll be in that time. Yeah. And they go, yeah, it has changed. Oh, no, I've changed. Well, I think what's distracting me <laughs> yeah. about this is, are they not called kettle chips? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I would be the first to admit that they are a type of crisp, but I think the brand name is Kettle Chips. Now, before we go any further, I must note that in researching this, I saw exactly one of the questions involved in this book. And without giving it away, it involved a reference to the green ones in Quality Street being, and I quote, horrible. So may I just say, Richard, if you're listening, if you've got any spare, I'll bloody have them. (laughs) 
Well, it's also worth noting that I've literally just flipped open the cover and I'd start talking about it. One of the questions on the inside cover has changed a little in tone since this came out because it was released in 2017, I think. And it is, which member of the royal family do you think the others wish wasn't around for Christmas dinner? <laughs> now, I say that's changed, but, you know, according to men who just don't like Meghan because they just don't like her, there's no reasons for it. I just don't like her. Simple as that. It should be her that's not around. But, yeah, you do wonder how welcome Prince Andrew would be at the moment. <laughs> No sweat, of course. <laughs> but yeah, this is Emergency Questions started on Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. I think possibly the first one when he panicked around that things to ask. It became quite a big feature and it led to the original Emergency Questions book, which is the same size and shape as this, but orange. That idea was never stolen by other comedians who just passed it off as their own idea they thought of themselves. None of them even had questions that were more or less similar to some of the most famous Emergency Questions, but that's by the by. The original book sold surprisingly well because it just came out on Go Faster Stripe who do a lot of DVDs and downloads of live comedy mainly. They published the original book which eventually became you know, a proper high street book. In between, there was this Christmas volume which I absolutely loved and I will put it this way. I went through a phase of doing emergency questions on Twitter. When I decided to put them on my site, I divided them up into Christmas and non-Christmas ones. The post with all the non-Christmas ones in has genuinely had eight times as many views as the Christmas one. And ah. I do think that's because it's got a different cover as the lead image. It's just odd that it's part of the emergency questions. Sorry, part of, you think of how big Mahalastapur is. I seem to be the only person that's ever used Christmas emergency questions for any reason at all. I say that as somebody who's genuinely been on dates where women have pulled out the emergency questions book and i thought this is quite an interesting scenario i just think it's a really fun book some of the questions i would not answer in polite company but it's even been overshadowed by on ali and herring's twitch of fun ali's christmas song gagushka by elton john <laughs> would you like to be asked any christmas emergency questions as long as it won't be contradicting a copyright to do so then yes yes <laughs> I, I think that would probably be the way to go okay 28 how do you think an angel becomes a herald angel and do the other non-herald angels secretly resent for being herald I think obviously the herald is one of a number of names you may have for a local paper so it might just be a regional thing perhaps the southeastern heaven angels are herald angels and the northwestern ones are picayune angels okay well 33 does it freak you out in the cartoon the snowman the little boy is supposed to be David Bowie do you think it really happened to him it would explain a lot I mean it didn't before but yeah that's a good point in fact it isn't meant to be David Bowie anymore is it because they changed the actor there is no snowman cinematic universe <laughs> so is this like snowman no way home the snowmen of many dimensions <laughs> It would explain why there's so many of them in that scene at the end. Well, here you go. 491. What Christmas TV programme or toys do you remember that no one else remembers? <laughs> That's a bit matter. There is genuinely, there is a Christmas episode of the Pokemon anime that is no longer shown because it has the original racist design for one of the Pokemon that has since been changed. So hang on. There was an episode of Pokemon that was worse than the one that sent loads of children into comas. Yes, yes, there, there was one worse than Electric Soldier Porygon, would you believe? Returning to the book for a second as a concept rather than a tool, you and I have discussed before the Fist of Fun comedy cash-in book, for instance, and certain other BBC TV sort of spin-off tomes from around that time. Do you think this is the latest in a long trend of Christmas comedy spin-off books that you read once and condemn to the bathroom bookshelf? Are we seeing the evolution of that grand tradition here? 
I think it's the start of something different because I do honestly think the Cashim Christmas book in the way we knew it has had its day. It isn't just a change of taste thing. I think it reached saturation point. It was exciting years ago when you won't get things like Bachelor Boys, the Young Ones book. Or, I'm not going to say the Hale and Pace book of rights and wrongs. <laughs> there were things like, I remember a lot of people had the Harry Hill fun book and the Adam and Joe book, which were all really good. But then it just seemed in the 2000s, everyone did one and some were better than others. And I think it ran out of, you know, the idea of like, they were like annuals, but bigger. And just, cram- I say crammed with content. A lot of them had no content in. Interactive books seem to be a newer thing going forward. And I think it's going beyond comedy because, you know, Rich. Richard Osman does a lot of books like that. All kinds of things like that that have taken what would previously have been a puzzle book with a fairly bland cover and give them a huge injection of imagination and moved it into somewhere else. So maybe, maybe Christmas Emergency Questions is awaiting rediscovery. Does stone clearing fit into your Christmas anywhere? Absolutely. You have to put aside some time for stone clearing over the Christmas period. Otherwise, how are you going to clear all the stones? That's a kind of answer worthy of Bod, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let's not go back that way. Let's move right on. So until the damned are removed from the fist of fun comedy cash-in books rock and roll hall of mediocrity, make mine marvel. Kill for some armor right now. You're right. We need backup. Yeah, bunch. You know what? Is, is that? Yep. Are those? Yeah. signatures disable with extreme prejudice yes okay so i'm getting a traditional binary gender and some kind of metal tim help me out here this is iron man 3 which people might be thinking is an odd choice a because it's a big blockbuster movie part of the biggest movie franchise has ever been and b because, you know, I have this other podcast about the Marvel Cinematic Universe where Iron Man 3 has been covered on it. But the reason it's here is that people have forgotten it's a Christmas film. Well, here is your big chance, Tim. Much like my arguments about The Power of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood definitely being a Christmas song, not just a Christmas number one. It deserves a bigger platform, and this is the biggest platform I can get you. So please step up and state your case. Tell us why, without a shadow of a doubt, Iron Man 3 is a Christmas film. Well, you know, let's look at, at the moment, the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special has just come out. People have already started saying, oh, they've done the Christmas thing at last. And it's like, well, no, there was the Hawkeye series where basically Hawkeye got so fed up of his family that he went off and had an adventure with a younger archer in the big city leading up to Christmas. And they say, oh, right, okay. Also, Spider-Man No Way Home, where people say, oh, well, that was the first Christmas one, where I think basically just MJ says brackets Christmas at the end of a few lines. <laughs> That's it. But nobody is saying Iron Man 3 is not just set at Christmas. It is a Christmas film. It has Christmas music in it. And also, I didn't know this until I listened to the commentary, but Shane Black, who, as a director, 
is quite obsessed with Christmas. He said it was structurally modelled on A Christmas Carol. And Harley, the boy that a stranded Tony Stark meets and who helps him repair the Iron Man suit, is based on the Ghost of Christmas past. Because he's kind of showing Tony his past. Harley, who later had a cameo in Avengers Endgame, where, because he was, like, a couple of years older, nobody realised who he was and just referred to him as Stuart Lee, kid. (laughs) (laughs) But that's it. It is based on possibly the most famous Christmas story ever. There's plenty of seasonal trimmings. I can't understand. People wage all these wars for Home Alone and Die Hard. I don't think many people go into bat for Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, but there are all these films that people say they are a Christmas film. People say they're not. This is... It absolutely is, but it's sort of been written out of history, and I'm not sure why. Well, it also strikes me as probably the least remembered Iron Man film. I personally preferred this to Iron Man 2, which I think is desperately ponderous in places. But this one cherry-picks from one of the most well-received arcs in the comics, the Extremis arc, which is something MCU's been very good at, getting the most relevant stuff from 50 years of comics and making it palatable for a mass market. So I think it may not be so much that it's been lost as a Christmas film, as it's kind of been lost in the mix as a film. Well, there's also the problem that it's a Christmas film that came out in April. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it quite nicely, I would have I thought. think I've never had this... This is speculation on my part, never had it confirmed anywhere, but I think I know why that is. It was followed by Thor The Dark World, which did come out at Christmas, and it was the launch of Phase 2, the second wave of films. Now, I think they were originally the other way round, and people saw Thor The Dark World and thought, we can't start with that. <laughs> Plus, that has a more direct tie-in with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., like a literal crossover. Whereas Iron Man 3, it's more that Extremis is part of the plot line. And if you look on the official timeline now on Disney+, Plus, they've been swapped round. Oh, okay. All the Dark World is before Iron Man 3, as if that was the plan all along. Traditionally, you don't tend to get Christmas films at Easter, I would say. Yeah, that's a given, I think. I would also say, if anybody is watching for the first time the MCU films, or thinking of watching them, or even watching them through again... Just don't bother with Thor the Dark World. It has its... It's in humans you shouldn't bother with. (laughs) But like you say, it has kind of fallen down the back of the sofa a bit, which is odd when you think that it led straight into the short film All Hail the King, which, I mean, I should say what happens in Iron Man 3. I think it's around six months after Avengers Assemble and Tony Stark's having post-traumatic stress disorder from the Battle of New York. He's wrestling with an identity as Iron Man. At the same time, James Rhodes has been rebranded from War Machine to Iron Patriot by the government. And Aldrich Killian, played by Guy Pearce, who's a scientist who Tony Stark had snubbed when he was a nerdy, disabled, kind of irritant. He wasn't irritating because he was disabled, I should just say that. It's just he got up Tony Stark's nose, just with his general demeanour. But in the meantime, he's formed this company called Advanced Idea Mechanics, or AIM, and has developed Extremis, which basically regenerates the human body, but a tremendous sort of cellular structural risk, because people literally blow up from being treated with it. All of those three things mashed together into a very big storyline. At the same time, there are terrorist attacks being perpetrated by a terrorist called the Mandarin, who turns out to be Ben Kingsley. That led into All Hail the King, which is a short film about Ben Kingsley's character, which then led into Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which we've talked about on It's Good Except It Sucks, where you very kindly hosted that. And why it hasn't led people back to Iron Man 3... I mean, it clearly hasn't because they're not saying, oh yeah, hang on, that was a Christmas film all along. (laughs) Why it hasn't is interesting. Well, 
that's when we'll know. You know, we'll know that the link has been followed when people start talking about it in its rightful Christmas finery. I would say, I mean, I would say this anyway, but the one that people really argue about, is it a Christmas film, is Love Actually. I have seen Love Actually. I don't remember anything about Love Actually, apart from wishing I had not seen Love Actually. I am always going to recommend a film about a suit of flying armour over basically what's, I don't know, a few long EastEnders scenes. Maybe that's what it was lacking. If, if they'd have put a suit of flying armour into one of the vignettes, we might think of it a bit more kindly. Wouldn't it turn directly to the camera and ask people to donate to charity, though? <laughs> I mean, it would have had to, I guess. Okay, Tim, let's throw to Big Rat, not Roland, he's not invited, for a listen to what we've got next. Professor McLean, could I have a word? Of course. Professor, I must thank you for coming tonight. And your son, of course. Will you be staying long in the village? Oh, just a few days, I expect. Uh, Vicar, I understand the choir was much bigger before the What's church... What's Before? Before the church gained the reputation for being haunted. Haunted? Absolute nonsense. The villagers are a superstitious lot. They say they hear the bells ring when no one's around. Other strange noises, ghostly shapes, all nonsense. Take my word for it. Well, it won't take the World Intelligence Network to work out what this is. But still, Tim, could you enlighten us? Well, I should just say first, you have just made me wish I had chosen Roland's Countdown to Christmas, <laughs> which is a TVM <laughs> slot where literally each day Roland Rat opened the door of an advent calendar because, you know, there wasn't much else to do with him on TVM itself. And it had an intro where it had kind of jingling bells and he went, one, two, three, four, you know, all the way up to 24, yeah. And then some session singers went, Roland. Count down to Christmas. <laughs> that was genuinely longer than him opening the advent calendar. But this, this is a Christmas special that nobody ever mentions as a Christmas special. Joe 90, the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson show about a nine-year-old boy who's programmed with brain patterns of leading surgeons and scientists and athletes and so on, had a Christmas special called The Unorthodox Shepherd. It has to be said. And I don't think this is a controversial take by any means. I don't believe there has ever been a show with a bigger gulf of quality between the excellent theme tune and the completely unabsorbing action of the programme itself, as there is with Joe 90. It is kid adventurer stuff, though, and what kid doesn't love Christmas? So at least it makes sense as a Christmas special. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is, unfortunately, there is a downturn after, you know, the commercial peak, sort of, the you know, the viewing audience peak is Thunderbirds, and the creative peak is Captain Scarlet and the Misterons. Then there's a very sharp descent starting with Joe 90, <laughs> where, in fairness, I think it was, the thinking was, we've done everything else, we should have a child as the lead and it just didn't quite come off and I think that's evidenced by the fact that you know there were all those amazing tie-in dinky toys for the earlier series the almost indestructible looking blue Thunderbird 2 and the Fab 1 and the amazing SPV from Captain Scarlet where it had that kind of slide out ejector seat on it for this you got the jet car from Joe 90 which didn't really do very much and Sam Louver's car which is just a car <laughs> it's like they hadn't quite thought they come up with what 
thought was a good idea, but just couldn't make it work. But I will say, in contrast, this is a really good episode in a very mediocre series. And it's a reversal of, I mean, I say this one doesn't get mentioned. The other earlier, with the exception of Captain Scarlet and Mr. Ron's series, all had Christmas specials, but they tended to be a clip show in which, say, Troy Tempest or some of the Tracy brothers or whatever would visit a very healthy looking sick puppet child in hospital. And then some kind of plot would be foiled as part of that. But this is really, really weird. It's kind of straight into that whole sort of, you know, before the folk horror thing came along in the early 70s, it was kind of Brit horror, which I would describe it as kind of, I don't know, the best name I can think of is light program horror, a bit like the Kinks versus Frankenstein. Swinging 60s modernity meets classic horror, often with no actual horror involved. It also turns out to be the hoax at the end of it. And this is very much that, because it's about supposedly a haunted church, which is actually a front for a forging operation now the really weird thing about this the brain patterns they program joe with are of the world bank vice presidents now i'm sure he was a very capable man who ascended to the top of I me mean, because that's what never really gets celebrated about the jerry and silver anderson shows they all have world governments and benevolent world organizations it is a message of positivity and peace. So there is a world bank. It's literally the bank of the world. But they give him those brain patterns so that he can work out whether some notes were a forgery or not and who forged them. How would the vice president know that better than somebody who investigates this? What is really odd about this episode in particular is that because a lot of it's set around the church and the budget didn't stretch to building a proper replica of a church, they filmed a lot of the exteriors at an actual church. And then cut the puppet footage into that. And it looks more... I don't know. It seems to have a greater connection to the real world. When I was researching this, it seemed like they couldn't afford to make a puppet-scale church for the episode. So they actually came up with this technique as a money saver. But that and some other choices that were specifically made in this episode, not even Joe 90 itself, but this episode, actually pointed to the stylistic future of Super Mario Nation. Some of the techniques used exactly here would be used going forward in The Secret Service. From the bits I've seen, it does have the feel of something very ambitious. The Secret Service is a very strange programme. I absolutely love it, but basically this will make you decide whether you want to watch it or not. Stanley Unwin stars as a puppet Stanley Unwin who is a <laughs> priest who works undercover for an intelligence agency, has a device that can miniaturise and unminiaturise things, like basically the debigulator from The Simpsons. <laughs> it doesn't invent the thing longer, sadly. He has all these spy-busting exploits, and to avoid detection he talks in Unwinese which is Stanley Unwin's gibberish language that anyone's ever heard Ogden's Nut Gone Flake by the small faces will have heard it's a very strange show it mixes human actors with puppets and it's disorientating I love it but I don't think it's quite to everyone's tastes. I'll be honest with you, you've not sold it to me there. <laughs> I mean, I slagged Joe 90 off earlier, but I do think the show itself had promise. But most of the time it was so slow moving. It just seemed to be constant footage of Joe himself sitting in his little chocolate orange deal, repeatedly getting his brain rewritten. To be honest, it's not much to look at. It reminds me of the first swing at Battlestar Galactica, where they constantly have to replay the ship taking off because it costs so much money. It's good to see, though, that this isn't just a cynical, 
Uncle Christmas cash-in. They seem to have actually come up with a good and original story for this one. Yeah, watching it again, there were two things that really stood out to me in it, which is one, Joe scares the forges by pretending to be an angel come to seek retribution on behalf of her previous forger, which you think would be a terrible plot device, but actually works really well. It's done in kind of a... I mean, you know it's him, the audience knows it's him, but it's done in quite a scary way. Mm. And the other thing is, the priest, who I think obviously inspired Father Upwin, is pretending to be deaf because he's also onto the forgers. Actually, his hearing is so good that he hears Sam Luva remove the safety catch on his revolver and so it doesn't flinch when it's presented. It's a really clever story, but like you were saying about not delivering on the promise, I've always thought about Joe 90, that you know in the end credits, you got you know that amazing theme, that Telstar sound alike, that later bizarrely became genuinely, for a while, a big smash on the Northern Soul scene. You got that going on. What have you got behind the credits? Loads of different close-ups of his briefcase from different angles. <laughs> Oh, so visually stimulating. And I think it's true as well that the cleverer their shows got, the less people cared. You know, the less viewers did. You can say a lot about Joe 90 is not lowbrow. Oh, absolutely not. No, no. The core idea is quite a clever one. It's just not a visually interesting one. I do have to ask you one question before we move on. Which was your favourite angle of the briefcase? It was the one where you see the lock open. Oh. No, you don't see it actually open, but it is posed open. I was like, wow, that briefcase actually does something. Think. Very much the money shot of briefcase uh, <laughs> angles there. Well, I think we better move on if I'm going in that direction. So finally today, we reach 20 minutes into the future, like I'll be doing to avoid the prince's speech this year. There's an old man on a sleigh who's like me for just one day when he bestrides the world like a huge colostomy. He gets no presents and no fun, and he's forgotten when he's done. So here's a little gift, a song to him. From me. Merry Christmas, Santa Claus. Merry Christmas, Santa Claus. Merry Christmas, you are one lovely guy. So, not unusually for this show, we're looking at a thing that was massive at the time and featured some very strange spin-offs and has fallen out of view since. Tim, talk us through it. Well, I think you've just basically summarised everything we're going to be saying for the next however many minutes, because that was Merry Christmas Santa Claus by Max Headroom, which is a single late in 1986, and it's difficult to explain now just how big Max Headroom was at the time. Genuinely, even thinking to myself, oh yeah, Max Headroom was really big, you look at everything that went on and it was so much bigger even than you remember and yet people still remember Max Headroom as an icon you know as a piece of iconography but there is no sense of just how all-pervading Max Headroom was at one point in researching this I actually found out that Max Headroom was the face of New Coke and that just seems so (laughs) very appropriate so right for that moment in time but when it comes to this obviously i'm aware of max headroom when it comes to this actual single i can find out very very little ah well i remember why i bought it when i first heard it which was max headroom it isn't widely acknowledged that before you know there was the sci-fi action series max headroom which was kind of a co-production with america which i think was really where the reputation sort of rests on and close association with mtv when mtv was at its absolute height in the 80s but Max Headroom began in the very early days of Channel 4 
Created by Adam Jankel and Rocky Morton, who directed a lot of pop videos around that time, and also directed the Quattro adverts. Oh, fantastic. We talked about the looks of Vogue previously. They were asked for, for Channel 4, a show that could... Because, again, pop videos were a much bigger deal in the 80s than they ever were after that. And Channel 4 wanted to showcase the videos and task them with coming up with a format for that. And the idea they had was, it would be too easy to have a relatively hit presenter, you know, which early Channel 4 was awash with let's be honest about that and I think they found a lot of them embarrassing and they started thinking what if we have the most boring man imaginable and when they were developing him basically thought he seems like he's computer generated aha and they had the idea of this computer generated host looking very bland in a very straightforward suit and tie his software was slightly corrupted so he would occasionally say you know Ronald Reagan etc there was this show the Max Headroom show initially there was a pilot called Max Headroom 20 Minutes Into the Future which basically was what the American series was based on but in between there was this series where it seemed to me it was always the idea with Destination Zululand by King Kirk <laughs> with Max linking them and he became a really popular figure on the basis of witty links that was Matt Frew where the actor treated rather than any actual computer effect but it did look like something had been done on computer which is a huge novelty at that point in 1986 there was a special called Max Headroom's Giant Christmas Turkey which this was originally performed in as was the B-side Gimme Shades before that actually early in 1986 there'd been the Art of Noise featuring Max Headroom Paranoia, which is a top 10 hit that you don't hear now which is an 80s dance record with Max doing a monologue about not being able to get to sleep and the weird thing about that is what's even more forgotten is the 12 inch of it in common with like the 12 inch of the Spitting Image singles and the early comic release singles has extra comedy on it where Max starts creating a band that he wants to play on the record I think the Pope is on saxophone or something and then the last one he mentions is Martina Nav 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 she should get married <laughs> the 80s comedy singles are actually any good I say this advisedly about Hello John Got A New Motor as well because that has some very naughty language on there but they have got extra content on so it's always worth if you see them in the charity shop pick them up but yeah this is Max Hedges Giant Christmas Turkey which this will give you some idea of how big he was it has sketches in it involving Bob Geldof helping him write this in 1986 was still he was coming towards the end of at that point no he was arguably the most famous person on the planet yeah and also Tina Turner takes part in comedy interludes in it which makes a little bit more sense when recently I went to see Martin Ware from Heaven 17 doing a talk about his autobiography his podcast and so on but he mentions it because they worked with Tina Turner in the 80s they kind of masterminded their comeback and he said that at that point you know she didn't have a record deal she was playing sort of working men's clubs in the uk apparently she never forgot what she owed you know things like smash hits and channel four and so on and would always make time so i assume that's how she ended up on this robin williams is on it being interviewed as well that was a big get at the time even before max went absolutely huge it was a big deal. There was the book, Max Hedrum's Guide to Life. A very odd thing in the 80s. You know, I mentioned the comedy books earlier. You get books based on a personality like that, like How to Be a Complete Bastard by Aid Edmondson. Go to Bed with Jonathan Ross, nobody remembers from the Last Resort era. Max Hedrum's Guide to Life, I do still really rate. That really did have a lot of content in it. But in this Christmas special, he sings this song about how Father Christmas is nearly as famous as him. Because that was kind of Max Hedrum's deal. He was a very bland man who thought he was enormous mess a star and I love it I think it's a great I think it's a brilliant and very Christmassy song as well so I guess we come to the question that is at the heart of almost every looks unfamiliar entry given the fanfare for the character at the time 
why do you think this is so poorly remembered? I don't know, to be honest, because, you know, so much went on. I mean, we've not even mentioned there was a ZX Spectrum game. There were all kinds of other things. There's obviously there was the Max Spectrum broadcast intrusion incident, which I don't know. People might say we talked about that on here enough. I don't think you can ever talk about that enough. <laughs> I mean, Max Headroom himself isn't forgotten. I mean, even recently, in the final season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., in the bit where they were stuck in the 80s, Phil Coulson actually appeared as Max Headroom to try and contact the others. <laughs> so, you know, it is a reference people get. Wasn't there an Eminem video where he's Max Headroom as well? Almost certainly. So, it is still around, but the original series and this single have sort of disappeared. I wonder if that's to do with the branding of the American series and the whole American launch and the fact that early Channel 4 stuff never really got repeated a lot of it's caught up in rights issues I think because there are a couple of runs of the Max Headroom show I think one of them can't be located at the moment the master tapes of that there's a whole thing about could you dig them out given it's mainly pop videos in them but this single it didn't do very well I remember feeling when Smash Hits had the lyrics to it it was almost like an afterthought they didn't really have any because they loved having interviews with Max I say interviews genuinely interviews with Max Headroom I think it's almost like they'd not noticed this coming out I think it's still funny. I think it's still really listenable. It's something you don't get bored of. It has, unlike the greedies, it builds as it goes along. And maybe this is something that's become less of a comedy reference over time. But the library says, yes, even Belgians too. It's something I do find myself inadvertently quoting quite often. It's funny that that was a thing in the 80s. Because the other thing people will be thinking of at the moment is when Rowan Atkinson did Nose Night on Comet Relief. Where he had himself as a quiz master asking actual clips of politicians questions. He kept having Lord Hales was saying, the Belgians, in response to everything. <laughs> I love this. I think it's absolutely tremendous, and I just wish it was better now. I don't think there's ever been a digital release of it. No, no, I was hard-pressed to track down a version to listen to. Well, I've still got my single, which I ripped a long time ago to CD, but it's not the same. We need a proper, proper Max Headroom retrospect. We need the Max Headroom exhibition somewhere. I don't say that as a joke. I genuinely think you could get a brilliant exhibition of everything that went on around him. Go well in Tate Modern, that. Absolutely, and the odd thing is, it doesn't look that different. I mean, it looks very 80s, Max, with the moving zigzag background behind him. But it's aged a lot better than a lot of actual computer-generated stuff from the time, rather than things that were just made to look like computer-generated. It really does stand up digitally, which I think is why it's still an icon that's recognisable. Now, come on, we do have to talk about the broadcast signal intrusion. How terrifying do you find that on a scale of 1 to 10? Incredibly. Like, it's horrendous when, as strange as it sounds, you don't expect the unexpected when you're watching television it's whatever is on the schedule at that time is what you should be watching if something that fundamental can be messed with i think that's where the horror comes from but the weird thing about it is when you think about it you wouldn't have to look very far to the actual max headroom on television i mean i know that happened in america but you know if you used to face a new coke how many ad breaks must that have cropped up in per hour and yet over here it was forever you'd, you'd turn on the tv you'd hear the hail and paint audience shrieking with laughter because one of them looked a bit like max headroom and did the voice wrong <laughs> Even if you have genuine marks, you have fake marks. But there's just something so sinister about it. I mean, this is really festive, isn't it? <laughs> so I'd just like to turn the tables back, Gareth, and say, you know, you asked me to explain what I was doing at the start of this. Do you want to tell people about your band and about Retrospecticus? I mean, I'd love the opportunity. Yes, Tim, thank you very much. Well, this is the opportunity. I'm, I'm in a Liverpool-based hardcore band called Code Break. We don't have any Christmas songs. 
but we will be releasing some form of music in May. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And indeed your ears. In fact, that's probably a bit more useful. There's also a very unexpected new episode of my podcast Retrospecticus, which I do with Tom Williamson about the Simpsons and modern history. We've managed to get a festive episode together. Well, that's great stuff because I love Retrospecticus. And also, Tom's not had a brilliant couple of years health-wise. It's really great to see him on the bend and see you guys back. And I'd just like to, before I hand over to you for an outro, although I ask you one more Christmas emergency question first, just want to say thank you to everyone who's listened to or been on Looks and Familiar this year. Particularly, I'd like to give a shout out to Grace Dent, who did want to have a Christmassy chat, but it's just a bit difficult at the moment. And anyone who's helped in any way whatsoever, who's, you know, retweeted, who's said, oh, but I remember that in response to, you know, it does all count, I suppose. <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more Christmas emergency question, though, I think. Oh, fantastic. 152, when you're driving home for Christmas, do you ever find yourself looking out for Chris Rea? <laughs> so I can rab him off the road, yes. Could that then tie in with Rat on the Road and Roland Rat via Roland's Countdown to Christmas? Oh, no. We do, uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. We can't get away from Roland Rat. We specifically didn't invite him. Well, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very, very much. And a happy Christmas. And incidentally, a happy Christmas to all of you at home. Oh, imagine if that turns up and they show it on the BBC. Christmas. I'm going to say no more about that for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I have a dream today, my friends, that before this Christmas ends, a big Santa sack of love I'll bring. Then we'll unite the whole. on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Yeah! <laughs> Recognize it, Rich? It's a very Christmassy song. Oh, a 
Danushka. Ooh, ooh, here we go. You ready? Do ooh, ooh. I went on holiday to Berlin in Germany. I saw a lady guard at the checkout place. She looked quite nice. I thought I could be in there with a shot. Even though it's quite unusual to have the grand and model taking people didn't get into East Germany. I asked her name, she said it was Dadushka. I said that's a very Russian name. She was beautiful and her name was Dadushka, oh, Dadushka, Dadushka, I, I. Oh, I think you've confused two songs. Ay, gagushka, 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 ay, ay. This is Elton John's gagushka. Oder zwei oder drei. 